The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, July 14th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. On a day when the Senate discussed a health care bill that in its current form already has the only two Republican defections it can sustain, the other House of Congress took its time with another important action. There, Ted Lieu and Ruben Gallego read into the congressional record the transcript of Donald Trump Jr.'s email exchange setting up a meeting with Russian lawyers who promised dirt on Hillary Clinton. If it's what you say is, I love it. The Trump Jr. Russia story has a lot of dimensions, many of them ridiculous, but I want to just point out one aspect that's been under-scrutinized. The Trumps, we of course know, want to, need to, de-emphasize Russia as an adversary. It's in their interest. Their argument depends on getting their backers not to think of Russians as a nefarious force out to do us harm, but at worst, amoral actors, people you could do business with. If this weren't true, their whole case falls apart. If we look at Russia as the enemy, then the Trumps are betraying their own country. But there's something else going on. Let's reset the frame a little bit. If you think of U.S. slash Trump relationships with the Russians as adversarial, what does that mean? Because if you see the two sides as opposites, it becomes so clear just how rolled the Trump side is getting that Putin and his cronies are running circles around Trump. If they aren't pals on the same side or people who could work together, they don't don't have to be enemies, but just think of them as adversaries in a negotiation. Who's winning and who's losing? Trump says, oh, we got nothing out of the Russians. They showed up. They wasted our time. They talked about adoption. But think about what the Russians got out of Trump. We sat down. We asked for a meeting with his top team. They said yes. We sat down with them, and we have them on the record eager to collude with us. In this entire affair, the Trump team never discloses until it's forced to, and then they have to say something, and whatever they say is inadequate, and then they scramble to deal with the next revelation. On and on and on it goes. It's overwhelming them. How much scrambling are the Russians doing? How much stress is Vladimir Putin under because of this? Trump spends nights screaming at staff and plasma screens over what's happening. Do you think Vlad's been forced to hit the Ambien? Has his resting heart rate gone much above reptile trying to conserve his energy level? The Trump team accuses the Democrats of trying to score points, but we know it's really the Russians who've been dominating the scoreboard and the game is getting out of hand. On the show today... I spiel about these very same revelations and new developments where two or maybe three other people might have been in that fateful meeting between friends where adoptions were discussed and nothing more. But if that's a spy story or some sort of remake of Dumb and Dumber, I now bring you a ghost story. This new film is getting some of the best reviews of the year. It's called A Ghost Story, and its director, David Lowery, stops by for a spooky convo. Okay, it's not spooky at all. It's rather insightful. I think you'll like it. A ghost story by director David Lowery is called by USA Today the best film so far this year. Writing on RogerEbert.com, Matt Zoller Seitz says, I rarely see a movie so original that I want to tell people to just see it without reading any reviews beforehand. But I will tell you, my audience, just enough to orient you. Here's what happens. Casey Affleck is a ghost. 
He's the kind of ghost you thought about when you were six and you thought of a ghost. He's a guy in a bedsheet ghost. Casey comes back to the house that he shared with the love of his life, played by Rooney Mara. He can watch her, can occasionally make some things move, but mostly he stays in place in the place they shared, a house that becomes the center of the action. David Lowry wrote and directed a ghost story, and he is here in the flesh. Hello, David. How are you? I'm doing well. So visually, the movie, I mean, the poster of the movie and the thing that people talk about during the movie is what the ghost in the ghost story looks like, which is the cheapest-ass Halloween costume you could buy. Exactly. Which is, which is a sheet with two holes for the eyes. Now, a couple things about this costume. One, although it's an iconic costume, I've never actually seen it. Like, it seems like the kind of costume that everyone knows exists. It's a touchstone. But on Halloween, I've never actually seen anyone as a ghost, have you? My brother did did that costume when he was about six years old back in Wisconsin. Uh-huh. And uh, you see it in media a lot, like E.T. You right. know, they dress E.T. up as a ghost. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's in Beetlejuice. And it's in Charlie Brown's Great Pumpkin Halloween special. Right. And, yeah, you don't often see people actually dressing up as a ghost for Halloween. But it's such a... It's such an image that everyone recognizes, it's such an image that's understood that it has, I think, become the universal symbol for a ghost, even though you still don't see it that often. Right. Like an angel with the wings and a harp and a halo or a devil with the pitchfork. But I'm thinking if you tried to make if there was a movie with those elements, you know, the angel would have to make some sort of sly reference to it. I would think it would be hard to get over the comedy or the inherent funniness of it, or what we would assume would be the funniest. So how'd you wrestle with that? How did you, you must have said to yourself, all right, people at first are going to laugh, but then five minutes in, they'll forget that they're looking at this uh, stereotypical child's costume. That's exactly right. Like it's an image that's inherently funny. Yeah. And at the same time, there's a lot more to it than that. And if you give audiences the time to just live with it for a few minutes, it ceases to have that comic naivete to it. It's still there. It's still implicit to that image, but it, it transforms and becomes something a little bit more meaningful. And I love the idea of doing that. Now, there is a great thing about, there are several great things about this. And one is I took some uh, film studies and it's called the Kuleshov effect. You know this? The Russian filmmaker. So like on the Odessa step sequence, well, if there's a juxtaposition between something and a blank oh, yeah, expression, yeah, yeah. people will read into the blank exactly, expression. Yes. So as a filmmaker, that's awesome. You can let the audience project onto your main character any emotion they want based on the stuff that's juxtaposed with it. Exactly. You create a context to elicit an emotion in the audience who will then project it onto this very blank face. Yeah. And... The responses we've had from audiences is is phenomenal. Like the sense of empathy they have for this character and what he's going through is tremendous. And I and people do feel like the face is changing or that there's emotion there. And in, in fact, there's not. The face remains consistent the entire the, way through. The eye holes never change. The shape of them never change. We and we spent a lot of time making sure they wouldn't change because we wanted yeah. it to be consistent. How but many actual costumes did you have? We had. Two or three of the main sheet, and then yeah. as time goes on, it gets dirty and more mm-hmm. tattered, so we had two more costumes to show the passage of time. But the initial sheet, there were two or three because you know we were shooting in Texas in the summer, and they got real sweaty real fast. <laughs> um, are there moment? Is there a way for you to shoot it either up or down or in a way to try to uh, convey that the ghost is sad or the ghost is shocked or the ghost is experienced something? Are there tricks that you use like that? It I has, shouldn't say tricks. It, say it has more to do with the, it has more to do with where you put the camera yeah. in a lot of cases or what the camera's doing. So. You know, if you want him to feel alone, you move the camera 
pretty far back in the sh- in the in the room and put him in the on the other side so he's just sort of like dwarfed by his environment and he feels very lonely and he doesn't have to do much he can just be in that space if you want him to be angry you can use music and sound to help amplify that but you also can do like a push in on his face or like a we have this one sequence where he's getting frustrated and the camera just sort of starts off below him and rises up into his eyes and you just start to pick up on the emotion based on what the camera is doing and where the camera is placed but we tried to keep his actual actions incredibly consistent and incredibly minimal. So there's very little movement that he's doing. There's very little performance in that performance. It all has to do with how it, the the mise en scene of the scene is constructed. That's what gives the audience the emotional clues they need to project emotion onto his face. I say Kuleshov effect. You say mise en scene. We're good. We I, have our exactly. <laughs> we sound we sound like we know what we're talking about. <laughs> we're trying to out pretentious each other. I think right. Um, I want to get to, we've talked a lot about the sheet, but I have one more question with the sheet. Yeah. So I don't think this is this is a spoiler either. either it happens fairly early on, but uh, Casey's character is dead and he's under a sheet as one would be in a morgue, I think, or yeah. at least whatever my, perhaps just as mythological perception of a morgue is. That's what we understand, that the, the, yeah. your sheet is put over your body when you die in a morgue. That's yeah. how, that's, that, who knows if that's true. And so when he rises up, when he bolts up, he has the sheet over him and this kind of explains why there's a sheet. When did you get that idea? How important was that idea to uh, give it a justification? I didn't feel the need to give it a justification, but just felt like a natural way to get into that. It's not like necessarily about establishing rules or or trying to illuminate the origins of the classic Halloween costume. It was more just a way to get that image in there gracefully. That was a scene that was always there in the script. And I didn't realize until right before we shot it how hard it was going to be to have a, a sheet that you could pull off and show his face, put back. And then when he would sit up, it would cover his entire body. Right. We had uh, a number of magicians on the set helping us with this movie. And it was actually an old stage trick, a, a magician's stage trick that we employed to make that effect work. It was the same sheet? It wasn't a stunt sheet? It wasn't a stunt sheet. Wow, that's amazing. Now the pie scene. Casey comes back. He's looking at his uh, girlfriend, Rooney Mara. Um, she has just been uh, a pie. Someone dropped off a pie, uh, as mourners do, and she eats the pie. This lasted how long? To me, it felt like hour hour and a half how long did the yeah, actual, three hours yeah um, how long did the in this 87 minute movie 84 of it was me eating a pie but how long did it really last the scene you just described yeah. in total is just under 10 minutes okay and it's two shots first shot she comes in the door does some business there's no dialogue she just you know checks the mail and washes some dishes and and then sees this pie that a neighbor has left for her and takes a bite and then she sits down and the second shot is she eats it. And the second shot's four and a half minutes. So it doesn't really matter. It's long. It's, yeah. it's long. That's all people need to know. I wanted to have a moment in this movie that really defined her grief in a profound and physical way. And I wanted to have a moment where there's a something happening that we shouldn't be seeing and neither should Casey. But nonetheless, we are. And we just are going to witness this for however long it's going to take. Now, I, as a viewer, it made me antsy. It made me anxious in the middle of this. I'm, I'm fairly screaming in my own head. I do have to say it worked exactly how you wanted to use it. And by the end, I started really thinking about that and different reasons why that would have been so long. So I'm not criticizing it at all, but I did have these yeah. feelings that I was like hating things. Lots was, of people do. Yeah. yeah. So it is an elicitation of an emotion 
um, that is more on a visceral level than you usually get in a movie. What other things were you looking for the audience to feel during that? There's the emotion that she's going through, which you can tap into or not, depending on how much you want to pay attention to what she's doing as an actress in that scene. Yeah. There's the discomfort of how long it lasts. That's it. It's yes. uncomfortable. Yes. The most important thing to me about it, I think, is the fact that it is the first time in the movie, not the first time we've had a long shot that lasts for a while, but the first time where you realize that time is just passing by. It is all about just the enduring the passage of time. You really have to just sit there and just wait and wait and wait and you can be some people get very engaged some people cry during that scene some people get very emotionally moved by it other people are bored other people's mind wanders off some people get antsy but it's still going on like it's still just gonna whatever your reaction yeah. is that scene is happening regardless of what you feel about it and that's the way time works and because this movie is so much is concerned so much with the passage of time i really want to have this big moment half an hour in that lets audiences know that that's how this movie will function. This movie will treat time in a way that you'll feel it. To me, it also said that when the ghost, when Casey had just died, he was sort of experiencing life in real time in like a one-to-one -one ratio. But then as he went on forward and back through time, things seemed to be happening quicker for him. Um, maybe that could just be how you edit it, but that's how I interpret it. No, 100%. We find that in our own lives, like as a as a child, time goes by so slowly. Every day lasts forever. And now that we're adults, like years pass in minutes. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just felt like if this character is going to be lasting and enduring for the amount of time that he does, time will start to function differently. At a certain point, it functions so differently that he no longer moves in one direction. He starts moving forwards and backwards. Yeah. The time, time just starts slipping by and moving very rapidly and he'll turn his head and years will have gone by. The house is really important. It's about a place. Did you have an exterior of the house and then shoot on sets? Is that No, it was all one location. Inside the house. The house we yeah. saw on the outside was the house we saw on the inside. Yeah, I wish we had done a shot that like actually went from indoors to outdoors just to make sure that was clear, but it, it is all one house. Yeah, so this might be a spoiler. If it is, skip it. Important point of the movie, boom, the wrecking ball or at least the, uh, the ditch. The, the bulldozer. Trigger, the bulldozer yeah. comes in. How do you know how to shoot and capture what would happen during the destruction of a house? How much can you storyboard that? Or are you just kind of being a documentarian and trying to capture what the destruction of a house looks like via a bulldozer? At first, the first shot where that happens was very carefully planned out. Because it could be unsafe. For it could be unsafe. Whoever was under the sheet at that oh, point. Oh, for sure. I mean, we did it separately. Yes. We, we shot him and mm -hmm. then we shot. So right. it's composited together. Um, but... It was storyboarded out like that shot specifically. We'd planned it out and we knew that that was going to be very important. And we talked to the demolition company about what would happen if, you know, we, we knew where we wanted the bulldozer to hit. We knew how we wanted it to hit. And we asked them what like what's going to happen when it comes through the wall. But right this is here. a demolition demolition company who they're not stuntmen demolition company. It's they a real deal. It's a real deal yeah. demolition yeah. company. They were just they thought it was funny that they're like. So you want us to demolish the house at six o'clock? And we're like, yeah, the light's going to be great then. <laughs> and we're like, okay. <laughs> so we spent all day kind of like getting it set up, getting it ready. And at around, you know, six o'clock in the evening, we started shooting. And the first shot was, you know, the ghost is there and he's picking away at the paint on the walls. And all of a sudden this bulldozer comes in. And, and as I said, it's two separate shots that we composited together because we didn't want him to get hurt. And a good thing we did because way more of the house came down in that initial hit than we thought it would. It was just like a ton came down like the entire ceiling came out 
then we pulled the camera out. The camera was in a crash case. No one else was in the house at that moment. We pulled the camera out, um, set up in the front yard with three different cameras, and one of them was on Dolly, a Dolly, and another one was on Zoom lens. And, and at that point, it became more like a documentary where we just captured the house coming down. And the ghost is in there sometimes, sometimes he's not. And it, it was fast. It took eight minutes to destroy the entire house. It was very sad, but also thrilling and therapeutic to see this house that we'd spent so much time in over the course of the summer. And some, you know, we'd all just gotten to know it very intimately, as you do in a, with any location that you shoot a movie, to see it just be completely obliterated. And after we had finished cutting the movie and it was almost done, it was in December of last year, so shortly before it premiered at Sundance, there was one more shot that I wanted to get that I just felt we hadn't nailed the first time where the ghost walks up to the house for the first time. And so we went back there. The house was completely gone. Some of the trees had been cut down. We couldn't even tell where it had been. And we kind of just guesstimated where it had been. We set up the shot, got the ghost walking towards an empty lot, and then digitally added the house back in later on. But it was just so strange to be in this space that we had spent so much time in and to see no trace. There was nothing. There was no foundation. There was no driveway. There was no... It was just gone. And yeah. uh, it was very representative of what the movie was actually about to, to be there at that moment and see see that that space had been redefined. The house doesn't get its own ghost story. Exactly. David Lowry is the director. A ghost story is the movie. Thanks. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much. And now the spiel. Well, CNN and others are reporting that the get-together with top Trump campaign staff and the Russians might have had a few more participants. We're following breaking news at this moment and breaking news involving the tw that 2016, 2016 meeting in Trump Tower involving Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, and campaign chairman at the time, Paul Manafort. We are now learning there were more people in that room than just those three top campaign officials and that Russian attorney. You know what that means? It's time to play everybody's favorite game. I was in the room with the Trump team. Okay, let's meet today's contestants. There's Oleg Koleviv. Was he in the room with the Russians? Nah, nah, he was. There's Sergei Koloskova. Was he in the room with the Trump team? Yeah, I was. And finally, there's Fyodor Trumpotskov. Were you in the room with the Trump team? I certainly was. Okay, let's have our panelists ask some questions. Tom Poston, you're up first. Uh, contestant number one, what's RT? Is Russia Today is very trustworthy broadcaster. Uh, contestant number two, what's another name for Vladivladstock? I, I do not know. I always call it Vladivladstock. Contestant number three, What's the focus of this game show supposed to be? It's not going to be about divisive politics and, you know, emails, you know, accusing people of working with the Russian government. All right, Orson Bean, now you go ahead. Uh, yeah, contestant number two, what's a good source of foreign intelligence? Well, you could wiretap. There are human sources. There is always computer hacking. Uh, contestant number one, what sources would help you find out intel on an adversary? The best would be a double agent or operative deep inside apparatus of hostile power. Okay, contestant three, where do you learn 
information about your adversaries. His house cat at home once said that this is what's happening with the Russians. Back to contestant two. Why were you at this meeting with the Trump team? Uh, for leverage, for compromise, to uh, gain trust, establish contact, see if other members in the family also like the uh, PP shows. Uh, contestant three, what do you think of that? These lies and the perpetuating of that kind of nonsense to try to you know, gain some political capital is just outrageous, and he should be ashamed of himself. Okay, contestant one. No, no, we're out of time, Orson. On to Kitty Carlisle. Kitty, your questions. Yes, contestant one, what were you thinking during the meeting? I am thinking this is silly boy. Silly, silly boy. Soft hands, no callus, no real work. I snap him like pretzel. Uh, contestant two, same question. Manafort, this man has nice head of hair. Kushner, good at scheming. You can tell from the eyes. Trump Jr., I will break him. And contestant three, what were you thinking during the meeting? I'm very happy with the work that Paul Manafort's doing. I think our team is really coming into, you know, into place and swing. Uh, it's been exciting to be a, you know, a fly on the wall watching a lot of this stuff go down. Okay, now contestant one. Oh, no, that's it. We're out of time. Now is the moment of truth. Our panelists have locked in their answers. Will the real person who was really in the room with the Trump team please stand up? (gasps) And it's everybody, just like we thought. Thanks for playing. Come back next time on I Was in the Room with the Trump Team. And that's it for today's show. Chris Berube is the GIST producer. He is in great shape. Mary Wilson is GIST producer. Did, did you see Chris? He's, he's in great shape. Steve Lichtai is executive producer for Slate Podcasts. For him, the Muppets are not just a job or a career or even a passion. They are a calling, an urgent, undeniable, impossible-to-resist way of life. Oh, wait. Did we say Muppets? I thought we said bourbon. My mistake. The gist. This five-star review on Apple Podcasts says it all. It made me antsy. It made me anxious in the middle of this. I'm, I'm fairly screaming in my own head. Whoop-a-doop-a-doop-a-doop-a-doop-a-doop-a-doop-a-doop-a-doop-a-doop-a-doop-a-doop-a-doop-a-doop-a-doop-a-doop-a-doop-a